Welcome to the Kitchen, Bathroom and Cabinet Design Podcast with your host Hendrik in association with CAD International and the Kitchen and Bathroom Designers Institute. This is the first and only design podcast on kitchen and bathroom design in Australia and we'll be working to bring you some amazing content to teach you the tips, tricks and tools of the design industry. We're going to be sitting down and hearing from industry experts who will share some really unique advice and perspectives on how to make a bigger impact with your design business and with your designs. Whether you're an interior designer, a cabinet maker, building designer, architect or student, we believe that you're really going to enjoy these episodes. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another podcast episode of the KVC Design Podcast with your host Hendrik. And for today's episode, I'm bringing you something really, really special. So this is an interview I did with uh, Dyer Henschel, who's the director of Dyer Henschel Interiors, and she's been in the industry for over 30 years. What made this interview so incredible and so mind-blowing was all of her experience she was able to pinpoint the things that helped her succeed in her career the mindset that it required how she interacts with people and what sort of skills it takes to run your own interior design company and i mean i think the information in this is going to be incredibly useful if if you're sitting at home and you're thinking about starting your own business or you're thinking about how to move forward this is going to be like a key for you to move forward so let's go have a listen to what she said so i'm here with Di Henschel um and could you please just tell me a little bit about what you guys do um, well, we're an interior design company based in Noosa Heads in Queensland, uh, but we do work all over Australia and a little bit in New Zealand and Fiji and further afield. Uh, we've done some work in New York and London and places like that, but um, our main focus is Australia. Okay. Uh, we work um, as interior designers for residential as well as commercial projects all over the place, including medical practices. Uh, restaurants, uh, homes, uh, even retirement villages, uh, offices, you name it, we do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I checked on your page and you guys actually do like a, quite a huge span of work. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I also saw that you have a builder's license, which was yes. quite interesting. Yeah. Um, I think that when, when you say to somebody, especially men, yeah. Uh, you know, you've got a degree in interior design. They go, oh, yeah, okay, women's work. Um, when you tell them that you've got a builder's license, they suddenly sit up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I know that sounds a little bit sexist, but unfortunately it still prevails. Yeah, right, because obviously, yeah. like, there's not a lot of women who actually have a builder's license. So um, I think there are, a, I can't remember, but there was quite uh, not very many when I did mm. mine, which was probably about, I don't know, 16 years, 17 years ago now. Um, but 
happily to say that there are a lot more now coming yeah. through. And I think people's misunderstanding about what a, a builder is. I think that um, in the old school, you've got builders which are usually uh, usually a carpenter that then takes control over the whole site. So they could, you know, run around organising plumbers and electricians and roofers and steel workers and concreters. But in actual fact, they essentially were a, a carpenter. Mm. Um, but builders are really uh, project managers it, it, to a large degree and as much as that they are the, the head contractor that then has control over all of the other trades. And I think that where a lot of the old school builders uh, kind of fell apart a bit is that they didn't have any training in building uh, management Mm. And so the new um, building, um, you know, methodology and training is all to do with getting a very broad brush but intense uh, understanding of the entire process. And also, uh, if, if anybody's had a bad relationship with a builder, it's usually because of miscommunication or non-communication. Mm. And that usually comes down to not having the right um, uh, documentation, the right feedback, the right, uh, you know, follow through on various things. And that's where a good builder comes through. And I think that that's, that's where people are now starting to understand that a builder is not a carpenter. Mm. A builder is somebody that rules the roost and makes sure that it all works and it works on time and there's no float time involved and you're going to deliver the product on time and on budget. And that's where, as I say, people that don't have that um, training in building um, but have training in the building industry, which is different, mm. uh, that's where it starts to fall apart. So now being an interior designer and a builder, I feel like I've got a foot in both camps. I'm trying to be, you know, I'm still, I think I'm still creative, but I'm certainly um, more pragmatic. Very practical. practical. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because you have essentially as a builder then you would have a skill of the entire process of the entire building process and you yes. know every aspect of how that's put together and what could yeah. work and what couldn't work yeah but then on the other side um you're also creative as an interior designer and trying to express new ideas yes that's right so i think that um you know i mean both both my last two houses, I've been in my house, current house for 11 years, but that, that one, Master Builders House of the Year, I, I designed that from scratch and also built it mm. under my licence. I did my last house before that uh, in the same manner under my licence and one house of the year for that as well. So I was pretty chuffed that, um, you know, my first two major projects mm. out, of the, out of the blocks, out of the starting blocks when I got my builder's licence actually um, proved that, women can do it yeah. uh, and interior designers can be practical as well and I think that uh, I, a lot of our clients really genuinely appreciate that that um, angle of how I come across and when we're talking about doing major renovations which is one of our big big numbers we do a lot mm. of major renovations um, completely understanding how this process is going to work and what is possible before we start getting creative yeah. Uh, I think is really beneficial and greatly appreciated by the types of clients that we've got. Mm. Yeah, because it, it seems like people have this misconception of what an interior designer is. Like they yeah. think it's not always necessary and it's it's just a luxury. But I know. 
yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of people don't realise that um, we have saved so many people from a fate worse than death. I mean, there are so many decisions that people have made before they've come to us and they've said, this is what we're going to do. And then I, I won't tackle them on that, but I'll, I'll just sort of probe to find out um, why they came to that conclusion and why they thought that that was a necessary move. Mm. And then ultimately they will find by their own realisation of through the conversation that it probably wasn't the right thing to do. And in, in, in many cases that has saved them a hell of a lot of money and a lot of anxiety and heartache later mm. uh, when they find out that what they were planning to do really was either unnecessary or was just not the right way to go about it. Right. Okay. Um, so, how would you how would you describe the process of working with your clients and guiding them along with with the final well, outcome? Um, I'll I'll just draw on. I mean, our, our clients are very um, very easily drawn as a profile. Okay. Um, most of our clients are highly educated, well travelled. Don't suffer fools very yeah. easily. Uh, they like the finer things in life. They they like good food and wine and entertaining and um, you know political debates and they they're, they're um, philanthropic. Um, they care about the environment. They care about the people around them. They they have very close family ties. All of those things. If you looked at all of our clients, they have that kind of profile. Mm. And so when they come to us. Um, they also recognise that because they are usually professional in their own right uh, and specialists in their own right, you know, like lawyers, doctors, engineers and so forth, that they're the sorts of people that will recognise that, uh, that they need to seek professional help outside their own profession. Right. So when they come to us, they first of all, some of them are fairly sceptical um, because they're thinking, you know, is this? Are we just going to talk about frilly cushions and you know lace curtains and things, mm. or can I get some real in-depth uh, information that's going to help us move forward? The first thing that I would do when I talk to them is um, really get a vibe about what it is that they're trying to achieve, why they're doing it, what what is it that they want to do what type of people they are. And mm -hmm. you don't have to grill somebody to find those things out. You can just have a very normal conversation uh, on a peer level. And mm -hmm. I think that um, recognising that they have come to you for professional advice means that you can talk to them as though they, that they are your equal, even though they, you know, they're probably worth a gazillion dollars and, you know, they... they fly their own chopper to work kind of thing. It doesn't mean to say that they're any different yeah. on, on our level in as much as that they have come to get real life advice. So to get real life advice that's going to affect their family and or their workplace mm. or, or their workplace, because obviously we do a lot of in, uh, industrial and commercial stuff as well, um, is to find out how they tick. And as I say, just a normal conversation. It doesn't have to be specific and you don't have to have a list of, you know, 15 key questions that you need to ask them. But just by um, chatting, getting to see how much you can press them on their humour or their... Mm. Uh, we, we also have to talk about budget fairly quickly because, um, you know, 
how long is a piece of string. Uh, you know that you can buy uh, wallpaper for $200 a roll. You can buy wallpaper for $4,000 a roll. It just depends on, you know, what people are expecting. So budget is always a tricky one for me to talk about, but I have to because yeah. it, it gives me guidance. Um, style is something that, funnily enough, doesn't actually come up in that first conversation because you can mm. get a vibe on their style just by what they've said in the conversation, what they've shown you in the plans, what they've, or if they have got plans. I mean, a lot of our clients don't have plans. We actually do them all for them. So a typical renovation for us would probably involve between 60 and 90 drawings, uh, CAD drawings, to support um, what we've designed. So that would be all the cabinetry, the tiling layouts. The Is this for residential or commercial? Oh, for both. Okay. Um, yeah, but, um, you know, uh, electrical plans, lighting plans, mm -hmm. uh, uh, ex exterior elevations when we're doing exterior colour schemes and finishes because uh, exterior colour schemes will often involve, you know, rock, stone, tile, you know, all sorts of other applied surfaces. So. Mm. There's a hell of a lot uh, that gets that goes into these things, and um, that's why we can spend months on getting a project right. Because once once you've got the skeletal part of it in 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 its form, which is the mm. concept, the development side of it is when you have more conversations and you do have more interaction. But I've always said to my clients, this is not a dictatorship. This is not my ego foisting my ideas and opinions and ideals onto you. This right. is collaboration. It's a collaboration of ideas. They've come with a, with ideas. It's my it's my job to be a conduit between mm -hmm. the client's uh, desire and reality. And sometimes. Um, by funneling it into that conduit, uh, we've put in a whole lot of new ideas that they have never thought of. Right. And I always say to my clients, you know, if I didn't push you out of your comfort zone, I would not be actually doing my job because if you stay in your comfort zone, you can't grow mm. and you, get, you can't see another sort of perspective. So that's one thing that I do do a lot is um, push them sometimes a little bit too far uh, in one direction, but by that stage, once I've got them to that level, I've hopefully got their trust so that even though they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, they've got the trust that, hey, this is going to turn out okay. And, you know, invariably it does, which is a huge thrill for me because I feel like, you know, I've I've given them something that they would never have thought of. If they had been able to think about it for themselves, they wouldn't come to me in the first place anyway. Right. So that's really interesting what you've just said. So. I mean, I can notice from what you've just said to me that it's to you, it's a collaborative process and it's not yeah. based on ego. Yes. Because um, I know a lot of uh, different design firms, it, for them, the design process is just based on ego. So yeah. in your experience, um, has that collaborative attitude been part of your company's success or how would you? I think that, um, I think that, um, it comes down slightly, and I've never really analysed this, but probably part of my own personality is that I have never really wanted to do something by myself. Um, I could have just been a, a one-man band, you know, working from home and what have you, but I, I don't function very well that way. I function much better as um, a shared te uh, team member. Right. So I've got a really cool design team and also, you know, admin and support teams. And we also have our own factories 
where we design and manufacture furniture, which again is a collaboration again because, mm. uh, you know, I, I'm not a cabinet maker, but, uh, you know, even after all these years, you think that you'd know a bit more about it. But I think that because I have this, this whole, my nature is that I like to collaborate anyway in my mm. own workplace. I think that it's easier for me to engage the clients that way by saying, hey, this is, this is a journey and an adventure that we're going to go on together. I don't use those words because that sounds revolting, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> sounds uh, a little bit like play school, but you, you know, it's, it's, it's that feeling that I want them to feel when, mm. they, when they leave after that first meeting here at the studio usually or at their own place, depending on you know, whether it's built or not. Um, I want them to feel energised and excited yeah. And once you get them to that point, then the trust follows and then the design ideas follow. But the other thing in that first uh, meeting is that I always make sure that I have come up with something hopefully ingenious <laughs> so that they, <laughs> they think, hey, this chick's got it, you know. Yeah. I trust this woman. Wow, okay. So you're essentially, you're pushing them along, you're you're trying to get them out of their comfort zone so that they can move forward in the process. Yes. But I think that, you know, I mean, if I did that straight away, mm. um, they'd run out screaming. Right. So, um, as I said, it, it's, a, it's a building block. Um, you, you start with um, the fun, the personality, the, 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 the human side of it. Um, you throw in a bit of ingenious uh, idea that they hadn't thought of that, that, uh, goes along with their own thoughts rather than challenging them. I don't want to challenge anybody in that first instance. I want them to feel reassured. I want them to feel comfortable. I mean, honestly, going into an interior design company uh, first off is a bit like going to the dentist mm. because the dentist will say open wide and then he sticks his face in your face. That's sort of a bit like coming to an interior designer because you have to ask you have to find out, not particularly ask, but you have to find mm. out quite a lot of personal things about them. Okay. Like what side of the bed do they sleep on? Do, you know, what type of food do they eat? You know, what time do they get up in the morning? Do they sleep in? You know, stupid things like that. But in actual mm. fact, they're not that stupid when you're going to try and create something that's going to give this family, I'm talking about residential now, give this family um, the, the most wonderful solution and the most wonderful environment for them to live in for, for many years to come you know i mean i've, I've done jobs with clients because i've been around for so long that are still in the same place that i designed for them you know 30 years ago um admittedly we've had to fix them up a little bit along the way you know as in you know every 10 or 15 years we give it a bit of a spruce up but the fact is that they're so comfortable that they're still there to me is the nicest legacy yeah, I mean, given the fact that it's lasted so long and that you've been able to create like a timeless design, yeah, I think it's quite incredible. Well, I think that people say timeless and they, they throw that word around and they say, oh, I want it to be timeless. That That's actually code for I don't want to spend a lot of money if I've got to do all this again. Yeah. And the other thing is it's also code for don't scare the bejesus out of me by what you're going to do. So timeless is uh, they use the word, but in actual fact it means many different things. But I have also said to clients there is no such thing as timeless um, because everything comes back to a time. You know, you, you can say, uh, you know, unless you're going to do death by beige, mm. uh, even that isn't timeless because that was very prevalent in the early 80s, you know, before it all became, you know, oscillate and gold. 
Um, so there, there is no such thing as timeless, but what you can do is you can protect yourself from the future by the large scale, high priced things that go into a home or a business. Keep those as, as relatively neutral as possible and then add the, the pizzazz and the pow and the wow and all that sort of you know, jargon mm -hmm. in things that are easily uh, translatable. For instance, in a kitchen, uh, yes, you can go for a bright red kitchen, but you might get a bit fed up with it after a couple of years, but you could have a bright red splashback and a bright red kettle and bright red mm -hmm. tea towels and bright red plants. Whereas those are just like small things that you they're, can they're easily replace. You can change that in an afternoon, right. but you can't change a red kitchen in an afternoon. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can still give them the red and all those other things. You know, I'm using red because that's usually a, you know, a dynamic colour, but you, you get what I'm saying is that yeah. there, are, there are things that you can protect yourself against. Um, I've seen people that have got, you know, bright, bright turquoise, highly glossed kitchens mm. that they must have thought was fantastic when they saw it on the cover of some bloomin' magazine, you know, and it, it just, what the hell are you thinking? You know, whereas they could have done that same effect uh, in different ways without uh, spending forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars on cabinetry that they now can't stand a look of. Right. Okay. So, so in essence, keep keep your designs simple and keep them neutral to the point where you're able to change just small aspects of it. Yeah. As as the years go by, and you. Decide. I think. Um, Keeping the design simple is not probably what I meant because a lot okay. of our designs are quite complicated in as much as, you know, I've been designing kitchens since before I came to Australia, so it's a hell of a long time. Mm. And um, funnily enough, almost everything, uh, as I'm talking about hardware within kitchens um, that's available now was available before I came here, which is, you know, 30 odd years ago. So. Mm. Um, it's just that um, people are more aware and more amenable to having these sort of gadget things in their kitchens. But um, to, uh, to keep a kitchen functional sometimes is quite a complicated process, so it's not a simple thing. But I think that what I'm trying to say is that make it exciting, interesting and dynamic, um, but don't um, throw the baby you know, in I think I was supposed to do that the other way around, but you know what I mean. So yeah, yeah. Um, just sort of keep the the lines elegant and simple and then add whatever um, craziness that's mm. in your life, add it in some different ways. Um, I'm not talking, I'm not advocating everybody has a white kitchen, by the way, but there are things that are going to uh, stand the test of time longer than having something like, you know, an avocado toilet suite, which was mm. very popular in the 70s and isn't so popular now, even though avocado as a colour is coming back. Yeah. But luckily it's not in highly glazed porcelain dunnies. It's in very elegant matte um, uh, vessel basins and things like that. So, yeah. you know, I mean, it's an interpretation of a style that, was, um, that has been and gone and come back. Yeah. So that's another great thing about living so long is that if you stand around long enough, it comes back. Yeah, I know there were some mental things they did back in the 80s that nowadays you would go like, how? 
yeah, but then, but look at the 60s, you know, this, I just got back from Palm Springs and it's the 40s, 50s and 60s, mainly the 50s and 60s and a little bit of the 70s. But, the, the you know, the last sort of 1948, 49, 50 and then onwards right through to sort of the early 70s, that whole pop art, which is what we call it now, you know, that, that uh, uh, mid-century modern era, mm. um, you know, you show some of the things that I saw in Palm Springs to a 70-year-old, which I wouldn't because they would run away screaming because they remember it the first time. They don't understand that it's uh, it, it's such a vibrant, fabulous, happy um, time, uh, energetic time mm. and a revolutionary time in the world. And I think that that's why people are aspiring to it again now is because it makes you feel happy. It makes you feel young and vibrant. And a lot of people that, is, that saw it the first time around are not ready to see it come around this time. But a lot okay. of our clients love it. So, you know, you've just got to pick them. Um. Okay, so I want to I wanna just steer the conversation a little bit more towards kitchen and bathroom design. Yep. Um, so when you start off with your kitchen, so you've already interviewed your clients. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the major things that you need to consider when you design a kitchen? Well, first of all, um, I'll just tell you that um, height of bench tops which is mm. something that most people wouldn't think of asking first of all but in actual fact it is very important is back in i think 1923 when hygiena which was a company that i worked for when i first left college all those years ago as their export designer um they in 1923 or thereabouts were the were the first um people to design modular kitchens in the world. They became the biggest modular kitchen manufacturer in the world. They, they put out 12,000 kitchens a week when I was there, mm. uh, which is mind-blowing when you think about it. Um, but they set at that time the bench height, the optimum bench height for a kitchen, which all modular kitchens were made the same, was 900 millimetres off the floor. Um, and that was in 1920-something or other when the average height of a woman was five foot two. So the average height of a woman now is five foot four, which is 50 mm. millimetres higher. So does that mean that all kitchens are now 950 millimetres high? And the answer is no, they're not. Um, so is it time that we uh, lifted our game? Because just having a slight bend in your back when you're at a work surface is actually mm. quite um, tiring. So what we've been doing, we actually jacked down our, um, our normal height of kitchens a few years ago up to 920. This is probably about 10 years ago in our own factory. We put it up to about 920 because we thought that was better. And um, in, in recent times, we've actually been talking to clients about this and some of them are picking 950, which in oh. actual fact is in line with mm. the, the average height of a woman these days. Uh, the other thing is that a lot more men are in kitchens now, which has not even been recognised as far as bench top heights are concerned. Mm. The other thing is uh, accessibility. Um, uh, I've, I've been designing kitchens, as I said, for over 30 years. I have never designed a kitchen which has just got normal old cupboards with a centre shelf. Um, they're, they're a waste of time, a waste of energy. I hate the look of them. And the other thing is that... If you're over, even even if you're over 50, yeah. to bend down and grapple around in the back of a 600 millimetre deep cupboard to try and find mm -hmm. a you know a casserole dish is is rubbish. 
And the other thing is that between um, the middle shelf and the, the, uh, and the height of the bench, there's all that wasted air that's going to waste. So, you know, right. realistically, practically, and I'm talking about being practical here, is that all kitchens, in my opinion, should be some form of a drawer system. Um, so that that's the first thing. The other thing is that I think that a lot of people forget to, to include a rubbish bin cupboard. Um, you've just designed a fantastic kitchen and you've got some plastic bin that you bought from coal sitting at the end of the island bench. It just looks ridiculous. So, right. you know, things like that, they're all very practical things, but they're things that I consider all the time. The other thing is that how do they, how do they work? Um, you know, back in the day, there were, you'd have a U-shaped kitchen and one bathroom to service, you know, up to six to eight people in the family. Um, that's just not on anymore. As you know, you just don't buy a house or build a house that's got one bathroom. It's just ludicrous. And the mm. similar thing with kitchens is that you would not design a U-shaped kitchen, which is basically was designed to probably keep the poor housewife stuck in there rattling the pots and pans you know sort of thing so um kitchens are much more social now so that's why island benches are so hugely popular they're now mm. they're now recognized as the heart of the home i mean these are not new ideas these have been bandied around for at least the, the length of my career but it's just good that people now are so uh, broad brush mainstream that everybody recognizes that the kitchen is a sociable hub and therefore mm. it is much more important to get it right um, but getting it right um, it did, is determined by the the, the, the the family the other thing is that uh, when you think about that if you make a kitchen design so specific to one family what happens if they sell it and then it doesn't suit another family so uh, there are right. certain generic things that you have to take into consideration but I've always said that if you've got a kitchen bench that's cluttered with all sorts of clobber, then that kitchen's not been designed properly because there should be a, a space for everything. Mm. And there is, you know, you, yes, you can decorate it with things that, you know, whatever you like, but if you haven't got a, a storage space for everything on that kitchen bench when necessary, then the kitchen hasn't designed properly for you. Um, the other thing that uh, is also very popular now, of course, are new builds, which we do almost without exception, is to include a scullery, which um, is commonly known as a butler's pantry, and that can take on various forms. But in my opinion, if you're going to go to that ex extent and expense, I would recommend that you always put a second sink in there and even a dishwasher because essentially it, it's it's the you know the butler's pantry the the, the term butler's pantry is because that's where all, they used to wash all the dishes and do all the prepping and everything so that it didn't disturb the rest of the family well it's the same mm. concept now so if you're going to have a butler's pantry or a scullery as i call it make it properly functional not just a little adjunct with some more cupboards in it which really yeah. are superfluous you don't need more cupboards you need more function and right. the function is to be able to, um, mine, mine's tiny, um, but uh, when my kids want to, you know, get cereal, make uh, a toasted sandwich, do it, make a juice, uh, microwave something, grab something out of the fridge and turn the kettle on, all of that is there. Mm. They can still use the rest of the kitchen, but the thing is that they could make a full meal without actually coming into the main kitchen, and that really should be the function of the butler's pantry or the scullery. Um, right. and, and you don't need a lot of room to do it. You seriously don't. It's the same with bathrooms. You know, 
I think that it's more important to have um, uh, the function of an ensuite rather than the size of an ensuite. And you can physically fit an ensuite into a two and a half meter by one meter space. Wow. Um, okay. You can. Because all you've got to do is you, you can put 900 at one end for a shower, 900 for your to toilet, and then a little hand basin in the middle. That's a mm. function without actually having to take up a hell of a lot of room. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter how much space you have. It's more important as to how functionally you can use that space. Yes. And not make something an afterthought. That's right. And, you know, when you've got a small space, just think of a yacht. Think yeah. of a yacht, think of a caravan, think of how those designers make everything uh, dovetailed into each other. There's not one skerrick of space in a caravan or a yacht that is wasteful. Mm. And when you've got small spaces, think that way. If you get into that mentality, a lot of answers will come to you. You'll okay. suddenly have a different uh, a connection and a different perspective of how you're going to approach that space. Mm. Wow. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. Um, I want to just talk a little bit more because uh, I have to manage our time. Yeah. Um, so I really want to know what makes your, or what made your company so successful? Um, I don't think it happened overnight. I mean, mm. we've been going for 30 years and the early days were really quite horrific when I think about it. You know, I had, yeah two tiny kids and and, basic, and a husband to support because he actually had to stay home and look after the babies, mm. um, you know, while I was trying to sort of get it together. I think that um, I think uh, also back in the day in a particular area where I started the business, um, real estate agents were, of course, the first port of call to try and see if you could find people that have maybe bought a, a property or were going to renovate. And they were quite happy to give that information to you if you gave them money. Mm. And um, I wasn't prepared to pay for work. I thought if I have to buy work, I'm, gonna, I'm in the wrong industry. So that was a very difficult thing for me to do because I had to turn away sometimes uh, leads and contacts because I was not going to give them what I regarded as a secret commission. Um, you know, if they cared about those clients and they wanted to give them you know, the right advice and the right uh, contacts. Where do you start and stop? Do you, you know, if they ask for the name of a hairdresser, do you pay the hairdresser off? Do you, do you pay the butcher off? Do you pay Coles off, you know? So anyway, that was the early days. So very, very difficult. But I think mm. that um, you have to uh, uh, recognise what it is that, first of all, what you're wanting to do, what you're setting out to do, what your principles are, what your policies are, and try and stick to them. And it doesn't happen overnight, but if mm. you can stick to, um, they're not loose guidelines, they're fairly straight guidelines, but they're only like four or five. You know what, you, what your truth is, you know what your morals are, you know what your policies essentially should be, and mm. you know the type of people that you want to work with. And if you can just hang on to those, those thoughts and those guidelines, then eventually um, you will achieve. And I think that luckily now, you know, I am recognised in the industry and beyond um, for 
being successful, but um, I think that I don't actually regard myself as being successful. I regard myself as a work in progress, and I think that mm. I always will be. Uh, I still get stage fright. Every time I have to hand over a job to somebody, I think that I'm going to physically throw up. But, you know, you, you'd think that that would be over by now, but it never leaves me. Is that I'm mm. always constantly trying to achieve the best for my clients. And I think that that comes across in a lot of ways to our, our clients and they, they value that just as much as I value the information and the advice that I get from my accountant. They value and appreciate the advice that they get from me as their designer and builder. Mm. So essentially don't see yourself as separate from the whole process and don't see yourself as separate from all the people you're working with and no. keep learning and keep adapting. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have to do um, certified professional development or continuing professional development points for, to, to maintain our status because I'm a member of the British Institute of Interior Designers as well as the DIA here. Um, and we have to prove that we have done it. You know, I mean, I think that whatever the point system is, mm -hmm. I, I always blow it out of the water because I'm constantly travelling, reading, writing, listening, learning, because um, that's why uh, interior design is a science degree. It's because it's evolving constantly. Mm. It's a moving target. There is, there is something being created and in, introduced and discussed constantly. And I think that if you're going to go into interior design in any shape or form, you've got to recognise, hey, this is, this is the start of your education. This is not you being educated and then imparting your vision to the world. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So essentially, there's there's no moment where you just sit back and say, "Ah, oh, I've made it." God, I'd love to be in that <laughs> sometimes, but then I think I might sleep in if I did that and not get out of bed. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> huh. um, so it's really it's really a mindset thing to grow your companies. It's really a mindset thing. You think? I think. Um, uh, I didn't understand a lot about business when I started. In fact, I didn't know anything, mm. um, which uh, was a mistake. I think that uh, the more background and understanding, you know, you have. But luckily, luckily, I got um, a break with a nice accountant and I got, I got a, a really cool mentor uh, who just kind of literally kept me upright for the first couple of years because I was finding it so difficult. So I think that um, you you have to surround yourself by people that you can trust, and that that in itself is is a questionable thing because you you trust everybody until you can't trust them if you know what I mean, yeah. or you don't trust anybody until you can. So it, it's sort of uh, what comes first. But I think that if you can uh, arm yourself with as much knowledge as you can before, and I'm talking about business practical, uh, systematic. Uh, things mm. that you that are applicable that are applicable mm. to um, how the business is going to be structured it would be a hell of a lot easier to start than it was when I started because uh, I I just wanted to um, make beautiful spaces for people mm. without really understanding uh, how much of the business side was in, was going to be involved and you know, I still don't know a hell of a lot about business, but I do understand, thank God, a spreadsheet now. And, you know, I know what a gross profit is, which I didn't know when I first started, things like that, you know. Yeah. So it is It is evolving the whole time. Mm. 
And you know, in this time that I've been here um, uh, in business, the, the industry has changed exponentially because of uh, Pinterest, Instagram, uh, Google. Um, you know, we, we would find a product for a client. They would have no idea where we got it from. They wouldn't even know whether it was from, you know, Istanbul or Iceland. And now they can just Google it straight away and find out where it was made. You know, so th there are so many things now that are, are challenging to make sure that you're going to be innovative. You're going to find things for your clients mm -hmm. that they can't find for themselves. And putting it all together, you know, just finding one product is one thing, but putting it all together like a kitchen and a bathroom is an art form. It's an mm -hmm. absolute art form. And it cannot be underestimated how much time and effort you need to put into kitchen design particularly. But bathroom design is equally challenging, especially when you're talking about people that have got disabilities or they're getting older or they've got little tiny children, um, you know, or they've got limited space. All of those things are challenges that have to be addressed at the design point. Mm. And I want to know what are some of the most difficult challenges or failures you've encountered so far or in your whole career? Well, um, trusting people, uh, we've had two pretty major um, uh, losses. Uh, a, a developer went broke uh, the day after we'd installed all of the fixtures, fittings and furniture. Shit. Uh, and because it was the day after we'd installed it, if we had gone in to take it out, mm. uh, we would have been arrested for trespassing. So that took me probably five years to, to scramble back to where we were just because of the amount of loss. Yeah. Um, I think that um, uh, staff sometimes can be a, um, uh, an issue. Uh, they either think that they know as much, if not more, than you. Uh, or their ego takes over, or mm. they think that they want to impart their own opinions and ideas onto a client that's clearly not ready for it. So there's a whole lot of management of of staff that are, is always a challenge. Um, but I think that um, the biggest challenge, which is the most exciting one, is is just to keep up, keep up, keep up with what's going on. And, you know, I mean, back in the day, I used to do all my own hand drawing. I would draw all my plans by, by you know, pen and ink. Uh, I would do coloured perspectives with coloured drawing pencils. I mean, for God's sake, um, that, that just sounds so antiquated now because everything's CAD. But luckily I can because I can still hand sketch in front of the mm. client and tell them what's going to happen, you know. And I think that's a skill that is underestimated these days. If you can't draw a kitchen in perspective on a, on the back of an envelope, mm. uh, go back and learn how to do it. Right, because you're not going to sit in front of your client with a big computer and start no. with CAD drawings. Like you're That's just going right. to draw a quick sketch of yeah. of what and they're talking about and how this and this could work. Yeah, and you've got to draw in perspective. Else, it, it it undermines the trust and faith in your ability if you can't even do that. You know. Right. Show them that you've got some skill right away and then you're going to get trust straight away. Okay. I, I want to know a bit more. What is some of the, some of the unique traits that a woman brings into the leadership team? I think um, there's females generally, and I mean, this is so, you know, generic, generic in its, in its sort of uh, response, but females tend to be more empathetic 
Um, mm. They have a much better bedside manner. And I'm talking about, especially in the building industry, is that I can relate to the anxiety that the females uh, tend to have because uh, I don't know if this is proven scientifically, but um, it is more difficult from the clients that I've seen for the for the female partner to understand and read a plan. Um, and so I spend a lot of time waving my arms around in the room and, and, and walking. I'll, I'll pull out a tape measure, I will walk them, I will show them a room and I'll say, this is the size or this is half the size of this or this is where your shelf will be. And I start, you know, literally gesticulating and creating in a three-dimensional sense in front mm -hmm. of them when they've just got a plan so that they can start to live and breathe that, that building as a, as a reality rather than lines on a piece of paper that do not make sense. And I've got to tell you that I have met builders that will turn a plan around so that they can see what they're doing because they can't read a plan properly. And I just think, are you kidding me? But anyway, <laughs> there they are. So, um, yeah, I think that that empathy with understanding that people are not all on the same uh, wavelength as far mm -hmm. as reading plans, understanding building methods, understanding, you know, design uh um, terminologies even uh, uh, colour explaining how colour works with each other you know those sorts of things I think a lot of guys tend to um, brush that aside and think oh you know they'll get it eventually you know let, let's get down to the, the most important things but the, the, the most important things will be lost unless the fundamentals aren't explained properly and I think that females are probably better at um, going down to that grassroots and really explaining this is how it's all going to work from here and then you build it up um, from that layer by layer instead of just going straight for the guts. Uh, I see what you mean. So at its core, it's communication skills that people need so. to have. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, you know, um, it's, it's like doctors, you know, a lot mm. of doctors that they will treat a disease or an, an ailment um, perfectly well, but not create any kind of a rapport or understanding. The client has taken the white pill because the doctor told him to and they get better. Um, in, instead of understanding why they had to get, you know, give mm. the person the white pill and what, what it was that was causing the problem in the first place, and, you know, you can say that that's because they're short of time or whatever, but if they spent more time explaining things, they would probably have less patience <laughs> because they, the patients would be reassured and not have to keep coming back to the doctor to get more information, which mm -hmm. is kind of what happens to our clients here. I can tell straight away if somebody hasn't got it because they keep coming back and asking more questions and that's when you think, hang about, something fundamental hasn't happened here. Mm. We've got to start back right from the beginning and make sure that they understand everything and how, how, how it's all going and then reassure them, constant reassurance, and that that is a part of communication. Mm. You know, I've said to my, my team here, you can work for three weeks, slog your guts out in the background and not tell the client. The client, by the time you've told them that you've done three weeks' work, are so jacked off with you because they haven't heard from you that they don't even want to hear what you've done. So if you tell them every few days, hey, I'm doing this, hey, I'm doing that, you know, they feel like they're engaged, they, they feel like they're important, that they're part of this process. Mm. And that's another thing about the communication is a lot of, um, I'm talking about builders now particularly, the old school builders uh, um, will just go ahead and do things and not keep the client informed. And by the time the client gets to site, they're, they're so resistant 
to listen mm. to anything, especially if something goes wrong. But if you're in constant communication with the, with the client through that process and something is go, going to go wrong, they're much more likely to be um, amenable to what's happening or some kind of a solution because they've been engaged the whole way. Mm, okay. So, I mean, essentially they're going to get pretty, pretty angry or pretty pissed off if they haven't been involved in the process and That's all of it. a sudden someone comes up with this design and they just feel like completely yeah. defensive about it. Exactly. Hmm. Uh, and what would you say is some, some of the worst mistakes you could make with your clients in guiding them through this process? Um, you know, I can't be all things to all men. Okay. And I think that a lot of people do think that they can be all things to all men. Um, mm. And um, architects sometimes think that they, you know, a design solution is a design solution and it's, as long as it's part of their their uh, design philosophy and their architectural bent that, you know, they're going to all toe the line. But sometimes that just doesn't happen. So I think that um, the worst... Uh, experiences when you when you look back on them and not I don't like to dwell on them but it's mm. when I just know straight up or not straight up but just through a process that, that we're not connecting uh, mm. on, on us on any level or certain levels and there really isn't much point in flogging a dead horse we've really just got to um, you know as gently and as kindly move away and say that they'd probably be better with somebody else but how you say that and how it transpires sometimes is is nicer in some ways and not so nice in others mm. so it's it's more important instead of trying to please every single client it's more important to work with the type of clients that you resonate with Yes, and the ones that I just described right at the beginning of the talk mm. um, they're the ones that uh, that I do resonate with for no other reason other than I think that I actually uh, have the same ideals and likes, dislikes, values, um, lifestyle as they do. Mm. And uh, I'm not suggesting that, you know, I'm equal to them in any other way other than that I like and appreciate the same things that they do. Mm. So even when you started off, you had this mindset of that you wanted to work with the type of people that you wanted to work with. No, I think well, no. that uh, in those days I was just uh, happy to get anything, which sounds crazy, but, you know, that that in itself is an education because you're mm. doing all sorts of different things that, you know, ultimately you don't do again. But uh, it's all part of that process of learning and experiencing different um, different projects and different client clientele. Mm. But, yeah, I think that... Um, if I look back, the ones that were the most successful, even in those early days, were the type of people that I'm describing now. Hmm. Well, I'm completely mind blown by this whole conversation. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm learning so much. Um, That's nice. Thanks, Hendrik. So we're almost running out of time. Um, I'd really love to talk more about this, but I have to keep it short. Sure. Um, so the last thing that I want to ask you is uh, what do you see for yourself and your company in the foreseeable future or is there any type of goal you're working towards? Um, 
Um, that's another weird thing, and I don't know whether I should admit it, but I have never been goal orientated. Um, uh, to me, it's just been a privilege to be able to, um, you know, actually earn a living doing something that uh, largely is is very exciting. And you know, people have often said, you know, when are you going to sort of uh, slow down? Because I I'm like a Duracell bunny, <laughs> um, and I just sort of say, well, it's a bit like telling Elton John to stop singing. He can't. Mm. It's it's not possible. Um, it's his passion. It's in his blood. And I think that that's sort of what um, I see is that I would love to uh, keep doing what we're doing and just getting really, really much better at it because, mm. uh, and the type of people that I meet, they're all so inspirational in themselves that they're, they're, you know, captains of industry and, you know, um, wonderful, kind, interesting human beings. And, you know, mm. why would you want to stop doing that? Or why would you want to do anything different to that? So even our, our commercial clients, which you think, well, you know, you're talking about a company, but within that company, you've met so many interesting people and have they collaborated and worked with you to, to get to the end result. It's just, it is, it's a big thrill. Right. But it's very, very challenging. This is not uh, an industry for the faint hearted. Mm. Well, I think that's a great note to end this interview. Um, it's been delightful to interview you and thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. Anytime. time.